But tonight we're going to talk about the quest for knowledge. And is knowledge and seeking after knowledge um, a worthy way of trying to live in such a way that you can get beyond the frustration that sin and death has brought into life? You know, Ecclesiastes is always about these different schemes, things that we pour ourselves into, not, not, not just to sort of live apart from God, but even to live sort of alongside God, but to sort of cover our bases. You know, if God doesn't really come through the way I want him to, well, I've got my knowledge to, to, to live on, or I've got my talent, or I've got my money, or I've got my recreation. I can just sort of check out and entertain myself, even if he's not satisfying me. That's what Ecclesiastes is about, these different schemes that we use to try to escape the frustration that is life in a fallen world, rather than entering into it and even finding Jesus in the midst of that. Um, Tonight we're going to look at, like I said, the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. And there's two passages we're going to look at. I put them at the top of the outline. So let's read these and follow along. I, the teacher, from chapter 1, verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. (laughs) It's a a good verse for the end of the semester, right? Um, Because that's what the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom often feels like a heavy burden. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. That means done in this world. All of them are meaningless or frustrating. A chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. (coughs) I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 2, picks up this theme of wisdom and says this, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless or frustrating. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. That's interesting. Wisdom is better than folly, yet it still is not enough to overcome what's really wrong with us and what's really wrong with this world. Death cannot be conquered by wisdom. Death still puts an end to anything that we would pursue. It brings, you know, while there are things worth pursuing in this life, none of them will be able to undo What's really wrong? And yet we live, you know, in, in a culture that, that seems to put all its hope in education. 
Education is the, is the hope for everything. Ecclesiastes says that much knowledge actually brings a burden. The quest for knowledge and understanding is a heavy burden, verse 13 of chapter 1 says. But if you go a little farther in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, this idea about the burden is brought up again. And I put these, these verses in your outline at well. It says this, I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So here's a, a sort of fuller understanding. Now, what is this burden? The burden is we do long to understand things. And yet we're always going to be frustrated in our ability to fully understand. In other words, even if we know the big picture, we know sort of in a sense where all of history is going, the new heavens and the new earth, we still don't know from day to day what will happen. Will tomorrow bring new love? Or will it bring sudden death? We don't know. We do know that God will be with us, will never leave us or forsake us. We've sung these glorious truths. But the fact is, we don't know everything that we want to know. And yet, this burden in chapter 3 is described as really a gift of sorts, that God has set eternity in the hearts of all men, it says in chapter 3, verse 10. But the, the Hebrew is really the word for gift there that's translated set. So God has gifted us with this longing and desire to know, to make sense of the world that we live in, to not just be passive kind of people, sort of robots that just go through life being bounced around by these impersonal forces. No, God has given us this gift to want to make sense of life. It's one of the things that separates us from the animals. But it also is a burden. We know that life is not the way it should be, and it bothers us. But it it, it also, at the same time, calls us forward to something more. So while it's frustrating, and while it's difficult to bear this burden of knowledge, it also is the thing that draws us beyond what we experience now to giving us a sense that there must be more, that we were made for more. So this knowledge is a burden and a gift at the same time. But it can become an idolatrous thing, this knowledge, this pursuit of knowledge. God has given us a desire, but this is one of those desires that so often comes out of its bounds, like a river spilling over, right? It comes out of its bounds. We end up, instead of sort of humbly receiving this gift, and letting God lead us to put our trust in Him who is greater than anything we can understand, we tend to take our reason and our knowledge and want to use it as a way to control our world and to control even God. And this is when it becomes an idol. When we pursue knowledge as a way to escape living in the fall, Where do we lose it as a way to get out of the condition that God has put us into? That condition of having to live by faith rather than by sight. We see this throughout sort of the history of our world. Certainly the age of reason 
made an idol of reason for several hundred years. That was the dominant view of Western culture was that man's reason will be able to unlock life, the purpose of life, the meaning of life. And of course, it came to nothing. It is certainly you know, all kinds of technological advancements have happened, lots of skills that we have and abilities to manipulate our environment and our bodies and all kinds of things. But in reality, we don't have wisdom to understand how to use even the knowledge that we have. In other words, we can clone human beings almost, but we don't really know if we should because we've cut ourselves off from revelation, depending on reason alone, has been really, well, it's been a disaster in a lot of ways. And it's always worth remembering that the Holocaust was perpetuated and perpetrated by the most educated people in the history of the world. German universities for the hundred years prior to World War II had been the top in every field of academia, right? So, you know, we live in a world that that sort of has this naive belief that if you just educate people, it will make them better. But education can't fix what's crooked because the problem is not just a lack of knowledge. And the problem is not something that we can overcome by more and more knowledge. Because the Bible says the heart, the heart is at the heart of what we understand. It's not just knowledge. In other words, we live in a world that believes education is a solution to all ills, whether it's teen pregnancy, HIV, crime, whatever, on and on and on and on and on. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't support education, but we need to be careful that we're not naive. Education is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. It can't create, it can't um, correct what is twisted. And the Bible has lots of things where it talks about this, about the role of the heart. In other words, what you believe is true, what you think is always connected to your heart. The heart in the Bible is not where your emotions come from. The heart in the Bible's way of speaking is where your will comes from. And the fact is, we deliberately refuse to believe things and believe things even that we know are not true because we're just so stubborn. And we can see that in the big macro scale, as far as, you know, we continue to pursue policies as nations that don't seem to be working, and yet we continue, we're just so stubborn. Oh, and we see it on an individual level all the time, how many times we pursue the same kinds of things over and over and over again, putting our hope in things, even though we know better. Or we even say that, I know better. But knowledge is not enough. Even if you know better, you still do things because the heart ultimately filters what you know. This is the way the Bible understands human beings. And it's not just sort of out there in the culture, it's in, it's in the church as well. The church often gets sucked into thinking that knowledge is the key, that if we can just transfer information to people, well, then they'll automatically be better people and they'll live differently. And so, you know, we have you know, many, many churches, certainly the tradition that I'm part of, the Reformed tradition, has put probably more of an emphasis on the transfer of knowledge and the sermon than they have the other aspects of worship, like the sacraments. A um, lot of places where, you know, we basically just think if people can just get the information, everything else will flow from that. But there's more to us than that, because education and knowledge is not enough. And so while seeking 
Knowledge seems to be a really popular thing. We'd love to be in the know. Ecclesiastes says, listen, with much knowledge comes grief. Does it really help your life to have 24-hour you know, cable news stations that can tell you what's going on in the world in every moment, in every place in the world? Does it really help us? Maybe there's a reason why Jesus, who knew all things, was the man of sorrows. Right? With much grief, Ecclesiastes said, sorry, with much knowledge comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And we know this is true, and yet we still don't want to give up on knowledge. We still seem to hold on to this irrational sort of belief that if we could just figure things out, if I could just figure out myself, why am I like this? Maybe I could, I could sort of change and make my life better. Why is this person like this? Why doesn't this person respond to me this way? We're just always, you know, in so many different ways, putting our hope in knowledge rather than in God. Seeking knowledge is a, you know, as a way to control life. It's a very popular strategy. Is there anybody here, I wonder, who, before you call somebody up to ask them out on a date, you think through every possible response and then what you're going to respond to that and sort of plan it all out, right? This is seeking knowledge to control life and make sure that you don't get hurt. And life doesn't come with those kind of guarantees. See, one of the things that that I I want to talk about tonight is that we have this idea that, that life can be lived in such a way that you can get a guarantee. That if you just figure it out, you can sort of not really have to trust things beyond what you understand. We do that all the time with God, don't we? We say, well, I know he says to do this, but unless I can understand and figure out why that's really a good idea, I'm not going to believe it and I'm not going to do it. Right? Knowledge, we put knowledge over God all the time. Our own understanding over God all the time. And again, what we've seen in our world is that knowledge doesn't make a very good savior. It eventually will let you down. Eventually, you will find yourself in a position where you're not able to control your life the way you want because you've left out some critical piece of information. Some minor little thing, maybe. But knowledge, trusting in knowledge will always let you down. And again, like I said, the people in Germany who perpetuated and perpetrated the Holocaust were the most educated people in the world. So we should be careful about thinking that knowledge will make for a better world. It may not. It may actually enable us to do wicked things more easily. And so we have, you know, I love this quote by George Will, columnist and uh, conservative thinker. He says this, there's nothing so vulgar left in our experience for which we cannot transport some professor from somewhere to justify it. (laughs) Now, I want to talk a little bit about the quest for certainty, because What's interesting is when Christianity burst on the scene, it came into a cultural situation where Greeks and Greek thought dominated the world. And one of the hallmarks of Greek thought was that through philosophy, you would be able to come upon truth. Philosophy and knowledge was the way, and thinking and rational thinking was the way that you are going to come to truth. Christianity comes on the scene, and you see this right in, you know, fascinating in the first chapter of John's Gospel. This Greek word, logos, which, you know, in in Platonic thought and in the Greek philosophers is this idea of um, rationality, um, 
and the idea of philosophy. In John's gospel, right, in Christianity, Christianity comes in and says, the logos, the word, became flesh. Now, that's a pretty crazy thing to tell people who are Greeks in their thinking, because flesh is bad. How could the logos, the pure spirit, energy, knowledge, take on flesh? And what it caused all these people to have to do is they had to start over in how they basically thought about everything. When Christianity came onto the scene, when Jesus, the word, took on human flesh, it meant that there was a new starting point for thinking about everything. No longer was truth caught up and found in abstract principles and in abstract philosophical thought. All of a sudden now, truth comes to us through a story. That's a very different way about thinking things. And for, for many, many years, this Christian way of thinking really had tremendous influence. St. Augustine summed up the Christian way of understanding this way. He said, I believe in order to know. Now, the Greeks thought that you have to know, that you have to test everything, and once you're sure that you've got it right, then you can put your trust in it. Augustine says, no, what Christianity says is that if, if, if truth is a story that's still being written, you don't sort of grab hold of it in such a way that you control it or have power over it or can have such mastery over it that you'll never be surprised. And yet, this Christian idea that we enter into truth by faith, well, it didn't last. Uh, At the time of the Enlightenment, there was a real huge shift in thought. Um, As people began to criticize Christianity, particularly the idea of revelation, um, the Catholic Church actually found a man named Rene Descartes who was a philosopher, a brilliant young philosopher, and thought he would be a really helpful person to enlist in the cause of defending Christianity against skeptics. And Descartes set about trying to basically prove things to a point where they couldn't be doubted anymore. And this is basically his process. He says, rather than believing what Augustine said, that faith is in order to knowledge, faith leads to knowledge, what he says is that doubt is the way you get to knowledge. The way you actually can get to truth is to doubt everything you can. And when you can't doubt anymore, then you know that you've reached bedrock and now you can trust what it is that you can't doubt. You see what he's saying? Where Augustine said, you have to trust in a story. You have to trust in a God who has revealed himself, though he hasn't told us the answers to all the questions. We trust him in a person. Descartes comes along and says, no, it's better and more reliable to trust in everything, whatever you can't doubt. So doubt is the way that you get to solid truth. Now, it seemed like a good idea, and for a while it worked until Nietzsche comes along. And Nietzsche says, you know, the problem with Descartes' whole way of thinking is that he didn't doubt enough. Because, you know, Descartes would say, you know, he's, he's famous for supposedly saying, I think, therefore I am. What he actually said was, I doubt, therefore I am. In other words, I know that I must be doubting. So the one thing I do know is that I exist. But that's not self-evident to everybody in the world, the way it was to Descartes. The reason that that, was, that, that made sense to Descartes had a lot to do with the Christian 
cultural baggage that he had. It's not self-evident to a Hindu. It's not. Because the idea of the I and the individual is, is not a concept. It's not, it's not in their sort of way of understanding reality. All right. So the point is, doubt as the way to truth ended up falling short. And, and what really this cultural shift that we're living in now, postmodernism, is this idea, based on Nietzsche's idea, that there, there is nothing that's beyond being doubted. There is nothing that is so solid and reliable that you can't doubt it. Therefore, the best you can hope for is, a, is sort of to fashion your own idea of truth, either you or your sort of family or your tribe. That you can have sort of truths. You have to find some truths that work for you and make life work for you. But there's no truth you can really stand upon. Everything can be doubted. Everything can be upended, if you will. In, in some ways, Nietzsche has done Christians a favor because Christians should never have went along with Descartes' ideas. Christianity has always taught that truth is not abstract principles, and yet in so many ways the churches that we all grew up in thought that they could distill Christianity into sort of moral principles, 10 steps to how to have a happy life and a good marriage and this and that. We reduce Christianity, this story of God's surprise, the great surprise of the gospel, while we were yet sinners, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God made us alive, right? The gospel is the great surprise. It's a story that's a great surprise, and yet we sort of turn it into abstract principles, and it disconnects from us and for everybody else. And, and, and we're sort of living in this in this world where we're still in so many ways hoping that we can get to a point of certainty where we can finally know something and then be able to trust it. And Christianity says that whole project, that whole project, the Bible says, is contrary to what God has called us to be about. So what do I mean? Why, why does this all stuff matter? Because you may be like, okay, that was, that was a lot of philosophy to pour on you guys. But why does it matter? Here's why it matters. What Christianity teaches is basically you could think of it this way. You can never understand marriage simply by dating. In other words, you can't sort of sit on the sidelines and sort of from this neutral position try to figure out what's true in such a way that you'll never have to risk anything. All knowledge actually involves risky commitment. You can't doubt everything at once. You have to stand somewhere to doubt. And wherever it is that you're standing involves a faith commitment of sorts. This is basic to all human knowledge. So here's the problem, like for a lot of Christians, is they they sort of go out in the world and people are like, well, you know, what you believe is just based on faith. It's not based on reason. You You can't prove it. But, of course, the interesting thing is all knowledge is based on faith commitments. And they may or may not be true. You have to continually test them. You have to sort of see how it works out with the world that we live in. I don't, I'm not a Hindu because I don't believe that it makes sense of suffering and of our longing for justice. 
right? There, there are certain worldviews that you say, yeah, this just doesn't really seem to, to make sense of the world that we have and that we live in. So what has this got to do with us? Well, here's the thing. We're still living in the midst of this quest for certainty. See, one of the things that Descartes seemed to promise to us and that I think a lot of Christians have still not gotten over is the idea that we can know with certainty and in a way that we will never doubt anything. I meet students all the time who, whether they realize it or not, this is really at the heart of a lot of their struggles. Um, typical story of somebody that, you know, went forward at a meeting or maybe at a camp when they were in junior high, had a very emotional experience with God, and yet they haven't felt anything for years. And they wonder, you know, was that real? What was that? Um, and if, if I don't feel something now, maybe it was all just sort of, you know, my imagination or whatnot. This idea, and, and they, they think that if they really were a Christian, that they shouldn't have doubts. But let me tell you, you can never have an experience, and Christianity does not promise an experience that is so powerful and so consistent that you will never have to live by faith. But again, that's like marriage, right? You know, there's, there's a reason why marriage is one of the images that the Bible uses for us to understand what it's like to be in a relationship with God. Uh, like I say all the time when I do weddings, we don't sort of get these people together and sort of dress them up real nice and go through all this hoopla and ceremony so that we can get their emotions to such a fever pitch that they'll be able to walk out of that church and live 50 years married together because they're on such an emotional high, right? No, no, there's no experience that will be so powerful that it will be able to carry you through consistently where you'll never doubt, should I really be married to this person? Does this person really love me? You will never be able to live anything in your life to a point where you can have that kind of certainty. And yet we just, we're so stubborn, we don't want to face that. It gets us into all kinds of troubles. This quest for certainty is so powerful. I, I think that it's, it's worth thinking about what kinds of disappointments people have with Christianity. It's connected to this quest for certainty. In spite of the fact that God never promised it, we want the kind of certainty that can't be doubted so that we don't have to live by faith. I think a lot of people, I think I was one of these, who came to Jesus because I wanted answers. I didn't really want Jesus, I wanted answers. Okay? Now, if that's why you've come to Jesus, if this quest for absolute certainty is driving you and you think that you're going to get it from God, well, what's going to happen when you find that faith in Christ actually introduces new questions into your life? Christianity does not solve all of your questions. It actually introduces new ones that may be even more difficult for you to deal with than the ones you had before you ever thought about God. Like, how could a good God allow suffering? You think about that differently, and I think more intensely, when you're a Christian who follows God or tries to, right? So if you've come to Christianity, do you see, to have all your questions resolved... What will you do when you find Christianity actually bringing up new questions? Many people are in this place and they're like, this isn't what I want. This isn't what I signed up for. Well, if you try to use God as a means to an end, it will always backfire. 
And if you try to use God as a means to the end, but your real goal is certainty, it will backfire on you. And our questions will drive us away from Christ. The reason is because God will not sit still and let you poke and prod him. He will not sit there like a frog who lets himself be dissected, right? You can't do that to God. God is the one who examines us. God is the one who asks questions that we have to deal with, like, Adam, where are you? Who do you think I am? See, Jesus, Jesus will never be the passive subject of our investigation. He's always actively revealing and pursuing and pressing the questions back on us. Who do you say I am? You have to decide. You have to deal with me. Christianity is not something you can examine from a safe distance until you get it all figured out and then enter into it. Because the fact is, you don't understand it until you enter in. And, and this is important, when you enter in, you find that it brings up all kinds of new questions and concerns and problems, right? Now, there is a type of certainty that Christians can have. It's very different than this kind of certainty that Descartes sought, the kind of certainty where you can never have doubts. In Christianity, you see, our hope is not in our competence as knowing ones who can figure things out. Our hope is that we know the one who is all-knowing. In other words, there's another way of saying that we're saved by the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith. And that's good news. For people who doubt, it's very good news to know that the quest for certainty is a lie and is a false God. Because if you don't understand that, then whenever you doubt things, you'll feel like you're creating all your own problems because you don't have enough faith or you don't have enough understanding. But Christianity has always taught that the key is the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. And, you know, Christianity has always taught that when you come to know the truth, it will will continue to fully elude you. It'll continue to elude you. You'll never be able to fully grab hold of it in a way that you won't continue to have questions. This is why one of the mottos of the Reformation, people ask me sometimes, what does it mean to be reformed? I think one of the best ways to answer that question is to say, to be reformed means to take sin seriously and to understand that we need to be reformed by the scriptures, which is the only rule of faith, what we are to believe and practice, how we're to live, the only standard. We need to be reformed according to that true revelation, and we always need to continually be reformed. One of the models of the Reformation was reformed, yet always reforming. We never arrive. Unfortunately, a lot of people who call themselves reformed think that they've arrived and they don't need to reform anymore at all, at least their understanding. That, that's so contrary to what reformed theology is all about. Okay? Now, I think this quest for certainty manifests itself in different ways in different religious groups. I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's fun, interesting, I've seen people sort of go from sort of reformed theology to Pentecostal charismatic theology and sometimes the Catholic, you know, become Catholic. And a lot of this, the quest for certainty, 
is behind a lot of this. In other words, some people are seeking certainty. They don't like the idea that the Christian life is filled with confusion and that the Christian church is filled with people who disagree with each other about what's true. A lot of people don't like that at all. And so some people are tempted then to to seek traditions like Greek Orthodox or Roman Catholicism or even authoritarian cults where somebody is just going to tell you what to believe so that you don't have to wrestle with it. Just just somebody tell me what to believe. There's a, a real comfort there. One of the ways that the quest for certainty seems to find sort of rest is in just submitting to authoritarian leaders. But there's also, I think, sort of what may seem just the opposite, sort of the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, is very similar at its heart in a lot of ways. Not for everybody, but for a lot of people, they're seeking an experience that is so powerful that it will resist being doubted or being doubtable. And people sort of run after that. And then there's people who sort of more in the Reformed world are seeking understanding and knowledge where all their doubts and their questions will be answered. But all of those will ultimately leave you empty. None of them will really work. Because God is the God of surprises. We can't put him in a box. Now the real question for us tonight is, does that upset you? Or does that thrill you? When I tell you that God is not the God of the philosophers who can't be put into a box, who can't be controlled, does that upset you? Do you hate that? Or do you say, thank God that he's like that? In other words, do you really want to relate to God as a person? Or do you want to relate to him as a formula? (coughs) Francis Schaeffer, great Christian leader, said that probably the most important thing to tell people in the 20th century is that God is not a mechanical God. Why did he say that? Because most of the churches, as he looked around them, were saying just the opposite. They're saying that if you do this, then you get this. God's like a vending machine. If you put in your money, you get this predictable result. If you do the right things, then you get what you want. But God is not like that. God is a person. It's one of the reasons, you know, the Puritans were very big on this idea of God hiding his face from his people. They, they thought a lot about it. They wrote a lot about it. Why? Because it's in the scriptures. It's all over the place. We never talk about it because we don't like that idea that God would hide his face for a reason that we may not understand. See, but this is the difference between dealing with God as a formula and dealing with God as a person. Persons sometimes reveal themselves, sometimes they don't. And you can't really control it. Sometimes they really frustrate the heck out of you. That's what it's like to have relationships with persons. Do we want to submit to the fact that having a relationship with God is having a relationship with a person? That's what we have to deal with. That's what we have to deal with. But see, the good thing about this is, if God was just a formula, we'd all be sent straight to hell. (laughs) I mean, the good news is that this person out of his great love and mercy, sent his son to live and die in our place. We don't get the result that would have been predicted. We don't get what was deserved. We don't get what was expected. The gospel comes as a great surprise. A famous preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones preached an entire sermon on the word but. And he said the whole gospel is captured in that one word, but. A lot of great buts in the Bible. The best, the greatest is Ephesians chapter 2. 
We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God. But God. That's the whole gospel. But God. So, how do we live in line with this? A couple applications as we as I bring this to a close. You have to understand, you have to approach understanding with humility. Our reason is a tool to receive God's revelation, not to sit in judgment upon Him. Wisdom means that we recognize that God has not promised to answer all our questions or tell us everything we might want to know. John Calvin's favorite verse in the Bible was Deuteronomy 29, 29. I know a lot of people think of him as the kind of theologian who pried into mysteries that we shouldn't go prying into. But actually, if you read Calvin, you'll find just the opposite. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, What has been revealed belongs to us, but what is secret belongs to the Lord. And Calvin thought that we probably had neglected some of what's been revealed and it was worth talking about, but... He knew, and it's fascinating when you read Calvin's Institutes, how often he stops and says, we can't go any farther. When he tries to describe what, how the sacraments work, you know, which is a pretty basic thing to Christianity, it seems. He says, look, I can't really explain this. All I can tell you is at times I've, I've, I've felt like I was caught up into the third heaven while I was partaking of the Lord's Supper, and I really don't know how to explain that to you. <laughs> and that's where he leaves it. Okay? Do, are, are we content? Are we content to leave things where God has left things? Or do we always feel like we have to pry? My, one of my favorite quotes by Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, when I cannot understand anything in the Bible, it seems as though God had set a chair there for me at which to kneel and worship, that the mysteries are intended to be an altar of devotion. And, and, and I really believe, you know, people on all sorts of sides of the theological persuasions, Calvinists, Arminians, everybody f- has a difficult time with this. We just don't like mysteries sometimes. I think that the, this issue about humility and understanding has a huge impact on the way we deal with suffering as well. Some of you may have read uh, Tim Keller's new book, and he talks in there about how one of the one of the issues that's a barrier for a lot of people in thinking about Christianity or embracing Christianity is this idea that he's a good God and yet there's so much suffering in the world. And, and what Keller says is philosophically, the philosophers don't see that as a very valid objection. And I know that for some people that that's a barrier. It's because of, it's not just the abstract idea of suffering. It's suffering that they themselves have experienced or witnessed. But philosophically, what, what Keller says is that you need to understand if God is big enough for you to be mad at him, then he's big enough to have reasons that surpass your understanding. In other words, I remember one time talking to a student at Belmont who said he wasn't a Christian. I asked him why. And he was because, you know, I, you know basically, I, I hate God, you know, the suffering and all the stuff in his world. And I was like, well, you do believe in him. You just don't like him. You say that you don't believe in him because of the suffering in the world, but you're, you're blaming him. You see, you can't kind of have it both ways. If you want to have him to blame, well, then you're admitting that he exists. You just don't like him, okay? So if he's big enough for you to be mad at, in other words, you consider him responsible for the world and the way it is, then you have to be humble and consider that maybe the one who controls all things can have reasons for what he does that you may not understand. So humility, in other words, is very important in thinking about suffering. And, and one of the things that suffering does is it tempts us 
It tempts us to put ourselves above God and demand him to explain himself to us. And the way Jesus answers that question is he hangs on a cross and he himself cries out, my God, my God, why? What what I'm telling you is the good news is that Jesus did not demand perfect understanding in order to obey God. And it's a good thing for all of us. We would have no hope if Jesus had demanded that before he obey God, he perfectly understood what was going on. That changes the way we think, right? It has to change the way we think about suffering and has to give us pause and a little humility. Wisdom means recognizing that life is not predictable because it's an ongoing story. We know the end, but we don't know what tomorrow will bring. God has not promised a controllable, predictable life, but he's promised to give us himself in the midst of whatever he will bring, right? Isaiah 43, when you walk through the waters, I will be with you. The waves will not overcome you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. I and the Lord your God will be with you, right? This is what God promises, to be with us in the midst of whatever comes, not to give us the kind of knowledge that will enable us to sort of carefully skirt around every difficulty that might come into our life. Ecclesiastes teaches that knowledge, while great, can't serve as a substitute for God. But wisdom from God can teach us how to live. And the book ends, you remember, fear God and keep his commandments. And I think, you know, the, the, sort of the, the heart of what I have to say tonight is fear God and keep his commandments even when you don't understand. That's what Jesus did. There's this passage in Isaiah where it talks about um, how we're to trust the Lord even in the dark. Jesus is the one who ultimately trusted God in the dark. And therefore, even when you're in the dark and don't know what he's doing with your life, you can know that he will never leave you or forsake you. Because if Jesus was ever going to leave you and forsake you, it would have been when he was suffering on a cross. That's finished now. There's nothing, nothing that could cause him to leave you or forsake you now. And that means that you can trust him even in the dark, even when he hasn't fully revealed what's going on. God does not promise a predictable, controllable life that we can understand, but he promises us himself. And you can take him at his word. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray.